0: Last week was praise night, so I've had two weeks to study this passage, and I probably needed two more weeks, or maybe two more months. Uh, Let me read to you what D.A. Carson says about this passage. He says, Few chapters of the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21 is the history of interpretation of this chapter is immensely complex. And so I figure if throughout the history of the church, if people have disagreed on this chapter more than any other, then the chances of me being able to solve all the issues tonight are pretty slim. Um, so I just really wanted to, first off, is set the bar pretty low. And let like you know I'm not going to accomplish Everything you might hope that I could accomplish tonight. Um, the reason it's so hard is that this passage is going to talk about the end times. We're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the last days, the end times, when, when Jesus' second coming is. And, and it's hard to always understand what happens and what's going on in the end times. And to be honest with you, as I've studied this and I've wrestled through it and I've tried to understand different people's ideas, one of the things I found for myself is that it's easy for me, and I bring this up every week, but it's always this temptation to miss the forest for the trees type of a situation, to get so caught up in what every word means and what's going on here that I there's some big, important, obvious things that's going on. And honestly, this morning was a time where it, it just kind of hit me. That this passage, our church needs this passage this, tonight. The reason is because this passage is written to encourage us to endure in the face of suffering and tribulation. And to be frank, I've, I've only been here two and a half years, and this seems to me one of the hardest stretches that our church has walked through in a long time. I... There are so many people in this room right now that are suffering immensely. Um, people that aren't in this room can't, can't be here. You know, Robert, long, hard road you've been fighting, and, and, and you'll have more long, hard road ahead of you, right? And I know that I'm looking at Nancy, and I'm thinking about Mary, and our heart is broke for her John and Danita, I talked to Kathy Maxwell this morning. Just really, I probably could go through here, this room, and hear story after story of life is breaking us down right now. And this passage reminds us that He says, I know, and I, I'm in control. I want you to trust me. This passage is where we really get the song we sing this morning. Uh, it is well with my soul. The, the last verse of It is well with my soul. It says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, or the trumpet, it will blow, and the Lord will descend he says, even so, he says, I'm looking forward to that and because that is why it is well with my soul. The passage we're going to look at tonight is a passage where Jesus says, you're going to walk through something really hard. But there's coming a day where the clouds are going to be rolled back, the trump is going to sound, the Lord is going to descend, and every wrong will be righted. And we will say without any hesitation, without any sense of mingled pain, just freely say, everything is perfectly well with my soul. And that is really an awesome, awesome truth. I think that's why this passage, I hope, will be an incredible encouragement to all of us. My fear is that I will be part of or even just... Our tendencies in this church to let our thoughts and excitements about end-time stuff derail us from the joy of what's promised at the end of this passage. There's really, as I kind of thought about, probably two main types of people in this room. Some of us in this room probably never think about the end times, never end times, who even knew there was going to be an end time? I just I didn't know that was such a thing, and that's not, not even on your radar. Hopefully today you'll see it's really important for Christians to understand this because our hope is that Christ is returning. All Christians of all time must believe that Jesus not only has made things right, but he's coming back to finish the job. He's coming back to restore all things for all time in imperfection. In And we're waiting for his return, eagerly waiting for that. There's another extreme, the extreme of I've never ever think about the end times too. I have end time charts printed out as bed sheets. I sleep in end time charts every night because I love the end times. And you have every hour of the end times charted out on your walls. I don't know if anybody's that extreme here. But that's a church, I'll just be frank, we had an end times guy come every year to our church as a kind of a revival, and we were being revived in our excitement about the end times. And um, let me, on one hand, awesome, right? On one hand, I think it is awesome because Jesus says, you should be excited about this. Something's coming, and you should be eagerly awaiting that day. I feel like in my own life, the way it worked out, though, were a couple problems. One is, as I've studied this, I realized, I got some stuff really mixed up in my head and some of the things I thought were true I kind of realized maybe weren't exactly what I thought. But secondly is end times became, rather than a sense of we're being bound together in our excitement of the coming of our Lord, it became a sense of division. Oh, you believe in a rapture at this time, you believe in pre-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, all these end time views, and if you don't believe like I believe, then you're not one of me. You know, you're not one of our group. I don't think that's appropriate. I certainly don't think it has any place here um, at Rayford Road Church. I'll read. Russell Moore has a. He wrote a chapter on the end times in a theology textbook. So, any if you're going to get into boring, tedious work through the end times, that's where you go. It's a the theology textbook. But he said this. He said, believers who disagree about the timing of these end-time events, and he was talking about the rapture, but just the end times in general. He said, do not disagree on anything of central importance. He says, a different opinion on this issue should never be an issue of concern in the church or in the Sunday school class or even in your marriage. Because what we're being bound by here is our excitement for the return of Christ and setting things right, and we want to look for signs. We want to understand how that's going to work, but not in a way that divides us from the central importance of the fact that Christ is coming back for those he loves. And there's no room for us to let this issue make us not love each other. So I I just want to say that, especially if what I say tonight is something you don't agree with, you're more than welcome to disagree with me, and I think I'll probably be wrong, but hopefully you'll still love me. Um, I told you, I think that this passage is encouraging us to hope, to endure through suffering, trusting that Christ is going to come and set all things right. Let me give you a big overview, and then we'll just walk through piece by piece through the, through the text big overview is Jesus has been going in Matthew the whole way through as a king, setting up his kingdom. And we've been in this fifth chapter, and we see this Jesus kingdom is in conflict with the kingdoms of this world, especially the religious kingdoms. And in chapter uh, 23, we started with Jesus giving a sermon in which he was telling the Jewish leaders, your house, this Jewish religious institution, this kingdom, is about to be made desolate. He actually uses, says in 23, I think it's 38, He says it is desolate. It is to be destroyed. And his disciples are going to say in this chapter, in chapter 24, hey Jesus, have you noticed the temple? It doesn't look that desolate to us. It seems like, in fact, that we're the desolate ones. We're suffering here. Right, we're following a man who says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I have no place to even lay my head. We're the desolate ones right now. It seems like there's a sense of suffering and they're thinking, are we in the right kingdom? And Jesus is going to walk them through and says, I'm going to give you pieces, snapshots of what is to come, signs of what you can expect. I don't think his purpose is so that we get our timelines precise here. But I do think he wants us to know that there are some things coming, and I will give you signs of them so that you will know I'm trustworthy. So that the song we just sang, uh, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus," you'll have some benchmarks, some bedrocks, some foundation that you can say, I can trust him because he's already proven himself here and here and here. And so that as we walk through these tribulations— We'll remember that kingdoms will rise and fall. Jesus says, but my words will remain forever. You can trust me when everything else seems desolate around you. You can still trust me. I'm still coming back, and I'm still going to make it all right. We'll see. We're going to do basically um, four major sections here. Five, if you count the introduction Uh, There's going to be a a setting where the disciples are going to ask Jesus some questions. Jesus is going to tell them, he's going to answer their question about this destruction of this kingdom. And he's going to say, look, I'll give you some false signs, some things that aren't really a sign of me completing everything you're looking for, and some true signs. And then he's going to say, after you see these signs, there's going to become a big sign, a period that we call the Great Tribulation. That's going to be this hard, hard time. He's going to talk about that in verses 15 through 28. He says, but then Jesus in verse 29 says, I'm going to come at the end of the tribulation, and I'm going to make it all right. I'm going to punish the evildoers, and I'm going to make right all of my chosen ones, all of my elect. They will be with me and rejoice with me. And so in the very end, he says, I just want you to watch. I want you to be ready. I want you to endure. I want you to trust me. Let's read it. It's it's a long passage. We'll start in verse 1 of chapter 24, and we'll read through verse 35. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Then he replied to them, don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these events are the beginning of birth pains. Then they will hand you over for persecution. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will take offense, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to pregnant women women, and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter on the Sabbath, for at that time there will be a great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive. But those days will be limited. Because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, look, here's the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance. So if they tell you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will shine. Uh, the stars will fall from the sky. The celestial powers will be shaken. Then. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the peoples of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near. At the door, I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I beg that you send your spirit tonight to illumine these words to our minds and our hearts. Give me the clarity to explain. Give us all the um, clarity to understand a a really difficult passage. I pray that you will help us to understand the particulars. uh, But more than that, I pray that you will help us to grab the heart of this passage, that we will be people who endure, people who trust you, people who are able to make it through intense tribulation, knowing that your return is near. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, that was a long passage, and we haven't even tried to explain it yet. Let's do our best. Get caught up in my nose here. So, verse 1, we have just basically the setting. Jesus is going out of the temple complex, and Jesus' disciples come up to him And they call his attention to the temple buildings. Now, what I'm doing is going back in my mind and just trying to remember some context here to say, why are they even doing this? Some people just think they were sightseeing and saw a really cool sight. The temple was magnificent and glorious, and they were bringing it out. But I believe that this is a response to what Jesus had just said in chapter 23. Remember in chapter 23, Really, just two verses before, Jesus said, see, and he's talking to the Jewish leaders. He says, your house is desolate. It is left to you desolate. Saying, the Jewish reign, this Jewish kingdom, it is done. It is over. Your hypocrisy has been, has been judged and found wanting. You are gone. God has turned his back on the Jewish kingdom here. And so they walk off. And the disciples say, that doesn't look gone to me. That doesn't look desolate to me. But where are we going to sleep tonight, Jesus? This temple is glorious. We don't have a place to lay our heads tonight, Jesus. And so Jesus tells them, he said, don't you see these things? He said, I'm telling you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down saying, I've pronounced judgment, so don't even doubt that I'm going to carry it out. I'm going to tear this building down so that not a single stone is even left on another. It will be utter destruction. And the disciples ask, when will this happen? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so you can see the disciples are now equating in their mind the destruction of the temple must be the establishment of Jesus' kingdom, right? Whenever Jesus finally conquers this Jewish king, kingdom, he must simultaneously be establishing his kingdom. So they say, all right, when are you going to tear down this kingdom and come? When are you, what's the sign of your reign? How's that going to start? And Jesus goes on to tell them, sort of. He doesn't give them a very specific, direct answer, but he starts to give them some signs, some things to look forward to, some things to think through that will help them understand that Jesus is going to keep his promise, so that when they're looking at a temple or they're looking at the success of a kingdom that is not Jesus' kingdom, they don't have to wonder, is Jesus going to be able to handle his business? They don't have to wonder, can Jesus really handle it when it seems like this temple is glorious and he's the one being kicked out of it? Or for us, is Jesus going to be able to handle it when a president that I don't like gets elected or a sickness hits my body that I can't handle? Can Jesus handle it when it seems like this kingdom is winning? And Jesus says, just trust me, but I'll give you some signs. And the first thing he does, and this was something that kind of really caught me off guard because of the way I just, I don't know if I thought this way because I was taught it or it just was in my mind. But the first thing he does are actually kind of like false positives. He says They're kind of signs, but they're not actually signs that the end is here. He says, there's a couple of things you need to look for. Let's start in verse 4. Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you because there's going to be many people that are going to come and they're going to say, I am the Messiah. So there's going to be false prophets that rise up, but these aren't the appearance of these false prophets, they're not really the sign you're looking for. He says, and then you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. These are not a sign of the end of the times. And this is where I tell you, that caught me off guard. I always felt like I need to be reading my Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And when I hear about a war, well, maybe Jesus is coming back. Jesus says, look, Wars are going to be increasing, but when they come, don't sell the farm yet. The end hasn't come every time a war pops up. And the same thing is true. Famines, earthquakes, these are what he calls the beginning of birth pains. I learned something. when When you're a single man, you know absolutely nothing about labor and delivery, Really, you don't know that until you have your first kid. But once you have your first kid, you start learning some things. Now, I've heard of a uh, phenomenon called Braxton Hicks contractions. If you don't know what those are, they're kind of contractions when you're not in labor. Right? If you have Braxton Hicks contractions, you think, oh, it's time to go. When you get to the hospital, they say, no, go on home. It's way too early. Braxton Hicks, they're they're false positives. There are signs that, yeah, you're pregnant. Yeah, the, the end is coming, but it's not here yet. Right? These are kind of like, these are the birth pains. I think this is the imagery he's getting at. This is the beginning of the process. Now, the reason I think this is significant to think through is, I just remember so many people throughout 38 years, and I don't remember most of my beginning years, so of of the years I do remember, These guys who come along with prophecy charts who will tell you, I can tell you when Jesus is coming. This war has happened, and this kingdom has done this to this kingdom. And there's been people who have, uh, we use the expression, sold the farm, but they've quit their jobs, right? They start writing checks that they're not going to be able to cash, rolling up things in the credit, and they're living in a way that says, the end is going to be any day, so I might as well throw a caution to the wind. And Jesus says, don't. That's not the way you should start acting when you see wars and famines and destruction. You should think this is a sign that Jesus is coming back, but not yet. But not yet. There's something that still has to happen, and that is you still have to endure persecution. It's going to get worse for you. The wars and the famines and the destruction, that's bad. But not only that, you're going to be handed over, you're killed, hated by all people. And this is going to start to ravage the church. People who say they believe, some of them are going to turn away because they cannot handle this persecution. Jesus says, I want you to know that when these reports start coming in, I don't want you to have the wrong idea because what I'm looking for, what he wants is in verse 13 the one who endures to the end. He says, I'm looking for long-haul Christians, people who are going to walk through the tribulation, be faithful to the end. Then he says, it's when this persecution comes that the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Mark makes it clear. Mark has almost exactly, but very, very similar quotation. He says that the persecution comes so that the gospel might come to the ends of the world. But it's the gospel going to the ends of the world that is the sign that the end has come. Which says to me, instead of reading the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other to figure out the end of times, I need to sit down and listen to Missions. I need to say, Tommy and Nancy, how's evangelism going in Honduras right now? Because that is what God is saying, I am waiting on and before I come back. And this is consistent throughout the New Testament. Right, there's a judgment, there, there's a rebuilding of the Jews, but Jesus says in Romans 11, not until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. He says, I'm tarrying, I'm delaying because I still have evangelism missions that I want done. The greatest sign pointing to the return of Jesus is the spread of the gospel throughout the world. That's why this morning when somebody comes from New Tribes Mission and says, we're translating Bibles in languages of teeny little tribes in Papua New Guinea, we should be thinking, ooh, that's awesome. That's awesome because that means maybe the end is near. How many tribes are left How many many more Bibles do we need to get out there? Because the sign of the return of Christ is the spread of the gospel throughout the whole— Now, not that the church will be powerful. The spread of the gospel is happening through persecution, right? It happens when, just like she said this morning, when you're kicked out of your property by some landowner that's angry, and God says, I'm going to use that to build a church, right? The sign of the spread of the gospel is not that life gets easier for us. God says, I'm going to use your suffering, your persecution, and your tribulation to be the means by which the gospel will spread to the entire earth. That's why you have to endure. Because it's your willingness to endure suffering that is the means by which God will accomplish what he needs to accomplish before he returns. But he says, when that happens, he will return. Now, I will just say, I don't think that means we need a different end times chart and figure out who hasn't been reached and who has. Uh, Paul talked about reaching Rome would be reaching the ends of the earth. And so I'm not exactly sure how God counts the ends of the earth. right? But I do know that in God's mind, the end is measured by evangelism, not by the newspapers. right? God's heart is missions. It's not politics. That's where I want my focus to be because I believe that's where God's focus is. Things get complicated because then he begins to talk about the destruction of the temple. You've asked how the temple will be destroyed. Well, let me talk to you about it in verse 15. He says, So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. And he goes on to describe a scary time. If you're on the housetop, don't even go down and get your stuff. Just jump off and go, right? Pray you're not pregnant. Pray it's not during a Sabbath when you have some sort of ceremony going on because this is going to get ugly. So what in the world is the abomination that causes desolation? And that's where all the debate begins to really flow in. The abomination that causes desolation, or the abomination of desolation, depending on your translation, um, is something that is first spoken of by the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9, I, I think it's verse 27. So I was flipping, keeping up with my notes, but I'm so far behind here that let's just forget it. Um, Daniel was written in about 600 B.C. He prophesied this destruction of the temple and an event that preceded it called the Abomination of Desolation. That event is almost universally agreed upon to have happened in um, 167 B.C., so 600 years before Jesus. Daniel says there's coming a time where something horrific is going to happen in the temple and it's just going to shut it down. About 450 years later, 160 years before Jesus comes, a guy named, uh, I think his Ant- Antichius, Ant- nah, I don't remember it. He called himself Epiphanes, but he was something like Antichius IV, but I don't think I'm pronouncing that exactly right. But he was basically a king of Syria. Um, comes in 167 A.D., and he slaughters a pig on the altar in the temple and begins a crazy persecution, a crazy persecution that was um, just a mass murder of Jewish people, kicking people out of the temple, something that ended up causing a military revolt called the Maccabean Revolt, and it's all really recorded in um, kind of the Apocrypha, the middle books of the Catholics, have in their Bible and we don't in ours, but that's a whole other story. Well, it's not. That would be a ridiculous rabbit trail, right? Anyway, that event seems to be fulfilled. And Jesus says, but there's another fulfillment of it. There's going to be another abomination of desolation another destruction of the temple is going to be a sign that something bad is coming in. The same way I made this, that Daniel made this prophecy of this abomination, So there's going to be this new abomination. And it's going to be a sign to you that the temple's coming down. Something's going to happen and you're going to know Jesus' promise is on point here and we better get out because the suffering is going to really ramp up. Now, Almost all scholars believe that that happened in 70 AD. Uh, if you look at Luke's account, he describes armies circling the, te- the temple. And, this, and it's when we read history, especially Josephus and some other historians, they describe the event almost to a T. Titus is the emperor of Rome, and his military comes in, surrounds the temple. There's some guys who come in, and they're zealots who offer bad sacrifices in there. Uh, But Titus walks in and destroys the temple. I mean, just levels it until there's no more temple. The suffering becomes intense to the point, let me read what D.A. Carson says about this. He says, the savagery. The slaughter, disease, famine. He so said there were mothers who ate their own children. It was monstrous, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and according to Jesus, never to be equaled again. He says there have been greater numbers of deaths. Six million. Uh, in the Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, an estimated 20 million under Stalin, but never so high a percentage of such a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. 70 years, uh, that's 40 years after Jesus was killed and rose again. Jesus said, you'll see something happen in the temple and it is going to initiate this incredible amount of suffering that's going to follow. And the temple will be utterly destroyed. So I told you this is where the debate comes in. The question is, some scholars believe that that event was the beginning of what is the Great Tribulation and that we are currently living in that that we are currently living in the period called the tribulation. And the reason that we are suffering the way we are suffering is because God is tarrying, waiting to come back to end this suffering until the fullness of evangelism has taken place, until all people have been reached. But until that happens, we are going to Spread the gospel through our suffering and through our persecution, and that really this tribulation started in seventy A.D. and will end with the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. That's what many scholars. That's not what I believe. Growing up, that's not what my uh, our evangelist taught. He believed the second major view that there is actually multiple fulfillments to what Jesus is prophesying about the temple. The temple will be destroyed, and that will begin a a destruction of the temple that will happen in the lifetime of all his hearers, but there will be an additional destruction of the temple, another one that's still to come, and that's going to mark a very definite time called the Great Tribulation. Um, We believe it's going to be a seven-year thing, seven years of a whole new level of suffering, something that makes what we're living through now seem like child's play and then the second coming. As I've studied through this, to be honest, I don't fully know. I don't think Matthew is bothered to solve this debate for us. right? So that I think that you can be a uh, legitimate Christian and understand the Bible in a faithful way and, and go either way. It, it gets more complicated as you start bringing in passages out of Revelation and Romans, and, and that's really where People start developing some, some of their end times views. Matthew is, seems content to leave it kind of ambiguous. I will read for you for what it's worth. This is what Grant Osborne says, and I kind of lean this way. Um, if you pin me down on it, I think I would agree with Grant Osborne. He says, those days is debated. Uh, and he says about D.A. Carson, some other scholars that are a different opinion. But he says... Uh, those guys, they see this; those days initiating this, initiating this broad days of tribulation. It started then and will go on uh, throughout the entire church age. He says, yet this phrase is repeated from verse 19, and it's difficult to see why it should be interpreted differently. Moreover, unequaled suffering in verses 22 parallels what's described in verses 15 through 21, but it... It's unequaled. it's on a higher level. It says while the time of persecution in 15 through 22 could be the church age, the discussion of this whole chapter favors it referring to the destruction of Jerusalem as a foreshadow of the final time of tribulation connected with the appearance of the Antichrist. For their sake, God will shorten the time of suffering, or else no person would be saved. He says, in 70 A.D., the Romans took the city after five months of siege. He says the final and only scholars use words like conflagration, but this final conflict, I don't know why they use words like conflagration, but the final conflict will be similar, and he quotes Revelation Uh, 13.5. In other words, to, to try to boil that down, he says he thinks that this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., is going to be revisited and heightened and that it was the first fulfillment and there's going to be a greater, more full fulfillment that leads into a period called the Great Tribulation. Either way, the truth is that the gospel is being spread from the time of Christ and his death through persecution and that will last and intensify increasingly until the return of our Lord. Regardless of what you believe on your timeline, regardless of how your uh, chart on your wall reads, the truth is, Jesus is saying, it's not going to be easy. You're going to want to turn around, and you're going to be told things. Like, there's another Messiah that you could follow. There's some guy over here that's worth following. There's somebody else. Maybe you could trust somebody else. Because this Jesus that you believed in, it doesn't seem like he's coming. He's coming. You're going to be tempted to walk away. And Jesus is writing this to say, don't do that. Don't walk away. It's the one who endures to the end that will be saved. Don't face suffering and think suffering is the final word. Jesus says, I intended, I allow the suffering of the church because I am using it to bring about the salvation of many, many people. And so Jesus says, heals, he restores us, but he hasn't fully healed and fully restored the church, and has promised to let us continue in suffering because on a whole it's very, very purposeful. It's very purposeful. The good news, verse 29. After the tribulation, whether you think the tribulation is the entire church age, or whether you think the seven years at the end, regardless of your timeline, at the end of it, immediately after it, something's going to happen. The sun's going to be darkened, the moon will not shed its light. the stars will fall from the sky, and the celestial powers will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, one from the end of the sky to the other, from one end of the sky to the other. Part of what's going on here, I think I left out a kind of confusing verse in this last section. It will make us understand this one better. At the end of this last section of the Great Tribulation, Jesus talks about these people that say there's other messiahs coming. There's other people you should follow instead of Jesus. And he says, don't go out. Don't follow these guys. And then he says these two really strong sentences at the end. He says, one is, as lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of man saying something really obvious is getting ready to happen. And so you're not going to... When Christ returns, there's no... Uh, are you sure this is the Christ? There's no wrestling with it. It's obvious. He's here. And then he gives this proverb, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. You know, we're not talking about carcasses and vultures. What is his proverb? And To my understanding, it's, re- it's kind of similar to... Growing up, Dad used to say, where there's smoke, there's fire. This idea that you can tell where one thing is by looking at the signs for it, right? So if I want to find, it's kind of reverse of it, but if I wanted to find the fire, I would find the smoke. If I wanted to find the carcass, I would look for the vultures. If I want to find the Christ, I look for the signs. I look for the signs that say, this is the real deal here. And in verse 29, he says, and this is the signs, this is the real deal. You're going to see no sunlight. No moonlight. You're going to see stars. The world is going to be shaken to its core. And people are going to look up and they're going to see the trump will resound, the Lord descending, and there's going to be two groups of people. One group of people that are terrified, mourning, wailing, some translations say. This idea that the Lord has come. We were wrong all along. I didn't mean to rhyme there. Maybe I should write songs, which also rhymes. (laughs) Right? But they're afraid because they realize, but we shouldn't take that to mean that they're repentant. They realize they were wrong, but that doesn't mean that they are now wanting to be made right with God. But they see the Lord descending, and they are terrified because they realize the judge has come back. There's a second group of people, people he calls the elect. The angels, when they blow the trumpet, they gather the elect from every end of the earth, right? That's, Jesus isn't coming back until there's people at every end of the earth to gather, remember? That's why we're waiting. We're waiting until every end of the earth, the gospel has gone out there. And then Jesus is going to come back, and he'll gather people from every place on earth, even Los Arianes, and he will pull people out of there, and they will meet him in the skies, And that will be the point in which Jesus says, I have eliminated all my enemies. I have eliminated the pains and the sufferings of death. The great tribulation is over. Suffering is no more. That's when we will say, finally, without any reservations, it is well with my soul. So Jesus says, In the last section, now learn from this parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer's near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near. He's at the door. In other words, he's just simply saying, some things precede other things. The same way that in the winter a tree can look dead, in the spring the Bark softens, it looks green again, then you start seeing sprouts, and then you know the fruit's coming. Right? These are signs that something's coming. Jesus says, look at all these signs that I've told you. You should look and say, are false messiahs popping up? Do does it seem like wars and famines and earthquakes and destructions have those increased? Has the temple been destroyed? Which it has, 70 AD. Flattened. Absolutely flattened. 40 years before anyone even thought it was a possibility. I believe many people have the temple as one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, and it's no more. See, I'm proving to you that by these things that I'm going to finish what I set out to do. You can trust me. On a side note, if you believe in a second destruction of the temple, or perhaps a second destruction of Jerusalem. Nobody really believed that before 1950-ish, right? 40s and 50s. At the end of World War II, before World War II, there was no nation of Israel to destroy. Right? It can't even happen because there's no way it could have been fulfilled. Now there actually is a nation to destroy. And... I'm not 100% sure I'm right about my timeline, but if I am, there very possibly could be a rebuilding of their temple. Not necessarily, because it could be just the destruction of Jerusalem again. But it seems to me possible that we'll see some big things happen in Israel. Anyway, the point Jesus is saying is, don't worry about your newspapers completely. But watch them and know that they are proving that I have everything under control and that I am going to come back. And when you're going through this suffering, when you're going through this, you can remember by looking out at all the things that have come true that heaven and earth can pass away. Every kingdom can rise and fall. Stars can just. Fall out of the sky. The sun might even look like it's going to go out of light. That's what it seems to happen here at the end. But, Jesus, my words will always be true. When it looks like there is absolutely no hope left in this world, don't forget, heaven and earth can pass away, but my word will remain forever. Just a a side note here, and I really want to get back to the main idea. Another the hard part about this passage is verse 34. I assure you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. All these things are the signs that show he's coming near. And the generation that he was speaking to, uh, some people have come up with fancy ideas of what that might mean. I think it just means literally what it says. People that are listening to me right now, that y'all, some of y'all will still be alive when these wars have started, when false prophets have started, and even when the temple is being destroyed. Right now, all of these things will take place to show that He is at the door, that is near. But that doesn't mean that all those people will be alive when He actually comes through the door. So we don't know when that will be. Could be, especially if we're in the Great Tribulation right now. It could be literally right now. Right? It, it could be in seven years from now. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure, but I am sure of one thing, that no matter what is going on, Jesus' words will prove true. He will come back. He will restore our bodies, our broken, cancer-ridden bodies. He will make them new again, right? He will heal us from any immune disease we have. He will, our, there will be no more death. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more wars, earthquakes, famines, tidal waves, Category 1 hurricanes, which aren't that bad. I felt like the Category 1, I was underwhelming, for me anyway. Jesus is saying, I will take care of my business. Trust me. Let me try to conclude here with just a few ideas. I've just really messed up my notes here all all together. So I'll just try to remember them. One thing that Jesus wants us to know is that you will face suffering and you must endure. You must endure suffering. That's hard, right? It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. It's hard to do because suffering is not easy. Tribulation is not fun. Tribulation knocks all the wind out of our sails. It not, it, you're just struggling to catch your breath, and you think, I don't know if I can get up in the morning. I don't know if I can put a foot in front of me. And Jesus says, do it. Trust me. I'm coming back. Be willing to suffer for my name's sake, whether it be suffering from enemies, or whether it be suffering from earthquakes, or the ravages in our body. Do it in a way that glorifies God saying, I'm looking forward to the day when the trump will resound, the Lord will descend, and even so it will be well with my soul. Endure. Every once in a while I hear about older men who have kind of been heroes of the faith, whether people I read about in books, but my, my own grandfather was this way. Somebody I always considered incredibly godly. For my whole life, I knew it just seemed like this person may not actually sin, kind of people. And as I've read about many of these people, and my grandfather in his journal was one, he prayed, Lord, keep me. Don't let me fall away in my old age. Help me endure. I think for some reason in our minds, we think, only young people fall away. But it's not true. I'm actually, I wish I could remember who it was, but I, I think it was the Columbia Bible College's old pre- president who prayed, God, don't make me a cantankerous old man. He says, I don't want to be angry and mean as I get old. I want to look like you as I get old. And I thought, man, what a prayer. And what a humble prayer to realize that it's not only that he needs God's help when you're my age and you feel like I can't control myself at all, I'm always doing something that I'm, embarrasses me. He says that's, that was his life all the way through, and he's always constantly saying, God, keep me, preserve me. The other thing I want this passage to do for us as a church it's just to encourage us. There was a song that we used to sing. I, I worked with a college group. It was an old song. We looked it up. Did you see? Stephanie, was it 1881 that was written? But I didn't know that. We just thought it was a new song when we sang it. It was called, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And in the third verse, it says this. It says, O joy that Seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that mourn shall tearless be. As I trace the rainbow. I know that this rain is bringing a rainbow. I know that this suffering is bringing about the furtherances of God's plan. And he says, I also know that God has made a promise And that promise is not vain. There's no chance that God's promise will be unfulfilled. And that promise is that mourn, mourn like mourning tomorrow. There's coming a day that will be tearless. No suffering, no pain. Because of that, the fourth verse goes on to say what we just said. said, So cross, I lift my head up to the cross. He says, and I dare not ask to fly from thee. As I lay in dust, life's glory dead. All of my dreams of some sort of greatness in this life, I'm happy, happily putting them to death. He says, but from the ground there blossoms red. As I put to death myself, there in that dead soil rises up, uh, blossoms red, life that shall endless be. That as I die to myself here, willingly enduring the suffering that comes as a follower of God, I can be assured that tomorrow is a greater day. And there's joy, great, great joy in that. Let me pray. And music team, you can lead us in a time of response. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Even when it is incredibly hard to understand at times and getting all of our timelines and figuring out